that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal. Your source for all things immortal. I'm Oliver. I'm a medical doctor from Cambridge in the UK, which is where I'm currently based. And I'm setting up a clinic where we're measuring biological age in all 78 organs across both genders, that is. And then using an evidence-based protocol called longevity level one, two, three, which we'll probably talk about later, to try and lower these biological age markers across all organs. That sounds really cool. So as usual, our show is called I'm Immortal, a little bit of a play on the words immortal. So we'd like to ask all of our guests, what does the word immortal or immortality mean to you? So I guess I don't really think about it much because it's not really clinically relevant, you know, day to day. Mm. I guess like what's more relevant is um, kind of like negligible senescence or negative senescence, which are quite, they're slightly different meanings compared to immortality so um as you may be familiar there's like certain animals that don't really have an increased risk of dying as they you know per each year as they get chronologically older and that's that's known as negligibly senescence um but they can of course they can still die from freak accidents or if the world is destroyed by a meteorite that kind of stuff um but that's probably yeah that's a more clinically relevant question I'd say, achieving negligible senescence, um, which is a reduction in um, the risk of dying each year compared to how we are currently. Okay, well, that's a good answer. And I'm guessing that's the whole purpose of longevity score, right? You're trying to educate people on this idea of being negligibly negligibly, uh, senescent. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, once, uh, once we achieve these, like, super high uh, longevity scores, which I'm, I'm calling Zolman age reduction score. Nice. It's kind of like how many years younger you are in each organ for, hmm. for each marker below your chronological age. Once we get super high scores in them, that's basically the best evidence possible um, that we've achieved longevity escape velocity, um, which which uh, you guys probably know about, but that's, that's this concept where you've basically achieved negligible senescence so or or you're predicted to achieve negligible senescence within your within your lifespan taking into account predicted innovations in the field so yeah a lot of terms we covered already which are quite confusing concepts (laughs) yeah definitely i want to make an effort to consistently use them so as i'm about to in this question (laughs) uh if you had the option would you choose to be negligibly senescent (laughs) <laughs> uh yeah of course who wouldn't i think um there was a survey a couple like two years ago where they um the problem with like most of these questions when it's like um people ask would you want to live for a really long time they never make it clear that um people make the the fair assumption that it would be just be like in bad health most of the time like there wouldn't be any advances in medicine that's what they assume when people are asking the question so but but when people ask the question and they say would you like to live to 120 years old um but with the looks and quality of life as you had in your 20s then i think it's 80 percent of people say yes 
and then when people don't put a number on it they're like yeah it's like beyond 120 i think it's about 50 percent of people so it's pretty yeah it just depends how you phrase the question to um do like correct scientific surveying of these kind of psychological concepts okay well j jumping back i guess a little bit we mentioned longevity school and uh we're kind of curious about this because we have some friends of ours who are doctors and they always have a story about like why they mm. got into medical school, what, what interested them about it. And I haven't heard any doctor. You're the first doctor we've ever interviewed for I'm Immortal. Um, oh, yeah. Right. So how did you get like, what piqued your interest in longevity in the first place? And how did that develop? How did that lead to the development of longevity school? Yeah, so I guess like um, it's just the most. You know, so most um, most healthcare is just for age-related diseases. So if you want to do good healthcare, you have to um, do good longevity care, or um, you know, geriatrics or preventive X specialty, whatever you, every specialty, whatever you want to call it, um, or regenerative medicine, or rejuvenation biotechnology, or or evidence-based anti-aging medicine. It's basically just normal medicine, like most medicine is already um, longevity medicine. Like you go to your doctor and you have high cholesterol and put you on statins. Like that's that's basically longevity medicine. Treating someone for a heart attack in any &E, that's longevity medicine because it's not uh, all age-related diseases. Like ninety percent of the time, these things. So it's just normal medicine, really, to me. There's no there's no difference. It's just the difference is um, ironically. Um, which is, is being evidence-based because you think there wouldn't be a, um, a non-evidence-based practice of medicine, but there actually is because evidence-based kind of has like a more technical term, at least in my opinion, than people, than people may think because you can have bad evidence-based medicine and good, good evidence-based medicine and the good, perfect, up-to-date extremely informed consent-based evidence-based medicine and that's the kind of difference that um, i'm trying to trying to implement is that it's evidence-based longevity medicine at a level that's never been done before mm -hmm. so before we jump into a little bit more about longevity i wanted to ask this for to help hopefully clarify to the listeners out there what exactly is evidence-based intervention or medicine therapies mm. and what role are they playing with life extension technologies yeah, so um, evidence-based medicine basically means looking, looking for evidence at step one, um, collating the evidence in a way that's useful to make decisions at step two, and then making decisions based on evidence in the context of a clinical picture in a personalized way. That's step three. So that's it's quite a technical definition of evidence-based medicine, but that's that's kind of what it is, and it's also using um, the you know biostatistical hierarchy pyramid of evidence to guide decision making and informed consent. So of course you have like a a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials in a relevant population, showing highly significant, uh, clinically and statistically significant outcomes in highly important outcomes such as clinical outcomes or all-cause mortality, that kind of stuff. That's like the gold standard for anything in evidence-based medicine. And then it's like the top of the pyramid. And then as you go down, the evidence gets weaker, the biostatistics gets weaker, and you're making decisions based on, you know, observational studies or majorly flawed studies. And at the very bottom, you're making it based purely on expert opinion or animal evidence. 
So, and it's taking into account this whole uh, biostatistical approach, which is basically how most medicine works anyway, but people, it's very complex and time consuming. So people, most doctors don't really have time to um, stay up to date and search PubMeds and all these things and, and learn dozens and dozens of new areas of medicine, which you need to for longevity, um, because they're, it's, it's very time consuming. You have to, you have to be quite a specialist. Um, and people are normally specialists in their own area and they can keep up to date with all the papers in, the, in their own area if they're very specialist. Um, and they know often if they have a PhD or master's, they're, they're better at doing that as well. But um, most of the time, people don't, doctors don't actually have the skills or, or the time to keep up to date with everything that they need to keep up to date with to, for all, their, all the patients that they see. So there's the evidence-based medicine in the theory and then there's evidence-based medicine in practice which is actually very hard to do. And that's why I'm creating this um, longevity school training program, um, which will be both for one version for clinicians and one for patients as well, but with different styles of content, of course. Okay, I'm, I'm going to... Does that, does that kind of yeah. answer your question? <laughs> I'm going to attempt to elaborate on that. Hopefully this makes sense. But um, so Xufal and I, we're not medical students. But we do have to go through the literature sometimes mm. for you know, our school projects and whatnot. And for people who are interested in longevity, I feel like we do want to find evidence-based medicine because that's, like you said, that's sort of the gold standard. Um, but there's so much out there and some studies can really be misleading in terms of like all data is it's data is not necessarily like, I don't know how to put it. It's data, but you can skew data and make it misleading in ways that sort of are biased towards a certain answer. Um, so I want to ask, cause I, I know with, with longevity school, you're trying to have something that is accessible to everybody for them to understand. Um, but how can mm. like people who are not necessarily doctors go through like longevity information and find the best sources of information without having like all this, you know, there's a boatload of stuff out there. Like how can they find what's the best? Mm. Well, yeah. Rule one is PubMed. Yeah. <laughs> um, rule two is a special type of PubMed called PubMed clinical queries. So you go to PubMed, the homepage, then you click on the uh, clinical queries link, or you do the PubMed URL, and then you put slash clinical at the top. And this will just like get rid of all the crap studies like uh, animal studies and protocols and everything else to give you high, high accuracy um, searches for clinically relevant studies like randomized controlled trials. So that's the first step. You just go to that website, save it on your favorites. Whenever you got a question, you know, like whatever disease you want to cure or, or try and try and get more info about or become more informed about, you just type it in on uh, on PubMed, um, on PubMed clinical queries, and start reading stuff. That's really like often the best source of information that you can get. And yeah, it is complex, and you have to learn some, you know, scientific terms and you know, how to read an abstract. It's not that hard. I mean. You can learn it in a couple of weeks, really, and get start getting used to it. Um, but yeah, if if that's too complex, then there's Wikipedia. Um, Wikipedia is surprisingly, you know, it's like it's quite good these days. It's pretty bad twenty years ago, but <laughs> quite good now. And there's also there's clinical guidelines, but I don't really like to rely on that because they're normally biased towards public health for a lot of age related conditions. So. Um, and they're really out of date normally, like five years out of date. So it's not ideal. Uh, but yeah, I, I'd say go to, pub, go to PubMed 
and search stuff on there. It's, it's the only reliable source of information is the uh, our, our actual scientific papers most of the time in my experience. So speaking of reliable sources of information and truth, um, so how can certain companies like, you know, especially longevity companies, there's plenty of them out there who claim, oh, take this, this is better for you. It'll make you age slower, yada, yada, something along the lines of that. Like, uh, how are they able to do stuff like that and falsely advertise? And is there no hmm. regulation on it out there? Yeah, so there's obviously there's regulations on um, prescription early medicines, or medicinal products. Um, but it's when you get into these, into like the supplement industry, it's very, uh, very loosely regulated in some countries and or not regulated at all in others. So I, I think it's more to do with the lifestyle and supplement stuff, which isn't really, I mean, they're not going to have that much effect anyway. So it can't do that much harm other than financial harm. But um, people that are buying really expensive pseudoscience supplements, they're not going to, they've probably got the money to waste most of the time. So I, I think on the, on the whole of things, it's not causing that much harm to society. I think there's more, there's more harm coming from um, just slow progress in, in research, which I mean, isn't slow compared to like, you know, it's always getting faster every year and it's amazing. There's like 50,000 randomized control trials published every year and so on. But um, yeah, it can always go faster. Okay. But in terms of, yeah, proving stuff that's like, that's evidence-based. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's tricky because ideally you want to do a randomized trial. Um, and if you can't do that, you have to kind of hash together some, non-randomized um non-randomized study which which is never as never as good but if you have really remarkable results that can often compensate but it's quite hard to to do that as well it's still it's still quite a skill to run these studies so i don't know i don't know is the answer to my question okay uh, well let's <laughs> go back to something more familiar then because we mentioned uh you mentioned longevity school and you mentioned this three-level framework. Just, do you mind just elaborating on that a little bit? So this is the protocol I use on, I've been using on clients and myself and building for a long time, collating all the evidence, putting it, putting together basically every possible aspect that can affect um, the aging process in every organ into a, a single evidence-based protocol. So level one is where you start, obviously. And that's where you're going to get most of the bang for your buck because it's all really cheap or or free stuff or stuff that even saves you money and it's also got it's got decades of scientific evidence behind it already and we know the effect sizes and everything so like it's 80 20 principle at this point in time for most people uh you're gonna get 80 percent of the benefit in um in your markers from doing the level one stuff in the near term and level one is just six things which if you do uh, it gives you from my mathematical estimations 75% of 95% chance of living to age 75 vast majority of which is a high quality of life. So the six things are not smoking, basically no alcohol intake other than a small glass of wine, a certain type of diet known as the alternative healthy eating index 2010, which is like 10 different dietary things, which are quite easy to do once you understand what they are, and become effortless. And then there's exercise which most of the benefits you get from doing the first hour or so per week of vigorous exercise, which is a specific type of exercise and BMI. 
So having that in the, ideally under the 22.5 range, but under 25 can be fine in, in Caucasians. And the last one is calorie restriction, which is the most complex part of level one. And it's calorie restriction, optimal nutrition. So that's where we're, we're going through every um, micro macronutrient intake and optimizing it based on uh, dietary analysis software called chronometer and doing blood tests or urine tests uh, in the case of iodine to optimize all those markers and restricting calories below what you'd normally have on an ad libitum diet. So that's level one. It sounds a bit complex, but it's really quite easy. You know, once you get into it, it takes a couple of months for people to start implementing it really. Get in a groove. Yeah, yeah. And it's crazy. You get really good results from that. So in your biomarkers, so all your aging biomarkers will drop if you're um, the average person starting to implement that. Then level two, this is um, level two, like a bunch of things which will increase quality of life, but don't have evidence for increasing um, like uh, median life expectancy in studies. So just a bunch of things which aren't going to reverse the aging process, but they're like really important for quality of life and just really important to prevent accelerated aging as well in some people. So it's, it's like 12, 12 modules in level two. And so the main ones, for example, are like sleep, mental health, um, and environmental exposures. So like air pollution, um, medical radiation exposure, these kind of things. And yeah, like sleep, yeah, sleep and mental health, probably the ones that are most relevant to the average person um but yeah they're not gonna they're not gonna raise your life expectancy or slow your aging uh significantly even if you ha if you have perfect sleep and perfect mental health but if you do have sleep conditions or mental health conditions or you live in a super polluted area or have a dangerous job or live in a super high crime area these kind of level two things then yeah it's going to increase your risk of accelerated aging beyond the uh, average person and then level three so level three is where we start doing the rejuvenation protocols uh so there's 70 79 <laughs> level three modules so there's one for each organ uh, and there's 78 organs in my classification system across both genders about 70 organs in a, a single gender and then the, the last module is these um, kind of multi-intervention therapies, which aren't targeted at a single organ, um, but are rather targeted at the, at the whole body. So it's just another, another way of looking at um, rejuvenation medicine. Uh, so not just at the organ level, but also the systemic level. So an example of that would be like hallmarks of age, therapies that target all, uh, like a hallmark of aging, or multiple hallmarks of aging throughout the entire body. So taking systemic therapies, whether that's intravenously or orally. That's a quick overview. Okay, well, thank you, Oliver. That, that was, I probably won't elaborate on the 79 organs <laughs> one, but uh, regarding at least level one, um, one, one question we always had was because there's a lot of people who are promoting lifespan and health span, or sometimes, usually both. Uh, but for one question we had, the, as far as I'm aware, most people would die right now because of an age-related disease. So if we, you know, if we do all the things in level one, we don't smoke, we have, you know, we exercise the vigorous type and moderate, yep. um, and we have great, you know, drink a little bit of wine, but not too much red yep. wine. Will that just delay the amount of time, like delay the time before we get an age-related yeah. disease? 
or will it? Yeah. Okay. So it's not just, so it delays it. And what about the duration we actually suffer from one? Does it also affect that as well? Um, let me think. I don't know, really. I don't know. Well, well yeah. So, so you're asking like a theoretical question, which isn't, you know, like isn't really relevant to real life because in real life there's innovation. Um, and we're not in like a static closed system. Okay. Right. Yes. So, um, yes, the answer is yes in real life, but unclear in the um, evidence base so it's probably yes in the in the uh, theoretical scenario as well but like in real life technology has got so it's getting so amazing like every year there's like new there's fifty thousand new randomized controlled trials which you can use to treat diseases so you'll live to a to a this is just a longevity escape velocity concept so you'll live to a um a future a future time whether that's one two three four 10 extra years or even 20 extra years compared if you're the unhealthiest person ever and you start doing level one, you'd gain like 20 years. Um, and then you'll be around when there's another million, you know, 50,000 times 20, another million randomized controlled trials, which doctors are using and you have access to the therapies too, uh, which you can benefit from. So you would have a, yeah, you'd have a longer health span as well because all those therapies would increase health span, uh, the relevant ones. So yeah, it's a bit of a complex answer, as you can see. But um, you have to. Well, it's a complex question. <laughs> you have to take into account um, technological progress, and that we're not in a static, static environment where no innovation occurs. Not true. Okay, <laughs> got it. All right. Yeah. So before we jump into more of our questions relating to how you became a doctor and things like that, I just wanted to ask because uh, we just mentioned it, wine. How exactly is wine helping us age less or age healthier? Yeah, so the evidence isn't isn't brilliant. So I think if you the best answer is going to be go on my website, go to the wine span page, and I've summarized done like an in depth analysis of the ten main studies, which whether the observational studies or randomized controlled trial studies, which um, show exactly how this mechanism of action might be working. Just summarizing, it's the best summary of the evidence for wine I've ever seen. So yeah, we don't really know, but it's probably the red wine polyphenols, which are a specific type of, um, it's a specific profile of polyphenols that you can't get from anything else. So it's literally from fermented, you know, it, fermented grapes made in the wine process. It's a specific combination of polyphenols there uh, at the specific dose. Maybe it has to be in combination with, with the alcohol as well, for some reason. Um, so it's the polyphenols, and what the polyphenols may be doing is decreasing uh, lipid peroxidation or oxidative stress a, li a tiny little bit from food when you eat food. And that little bit accumulates over decades to add up to a small amount of lifespan gains. So if you have you know, half a glass or a small glass of red wine on average every day for your whole life, you'll live like two years longer than someone that has no no alcohol intake so it's a very it's it takes that's why it's not showing up in the randomized controlled trials for clinical outcomes because it's a very my theory is it's a very small effect that builds up over 10 20 30 40 years so you'd have to do an rct randomized controlled trial that was at least you know five ten years to start seeing the power for it to be biostatistically powered to pick up that clinical effect size mm -hmm. So it's basically reducing the polyphenols specifically in alcoholic red wine 
are reducing the molecular damage from food. So it'll reduce oxidized LDL and uh, malondialdehyde, for example, raise catalase levels, these kind of things, um, which reduces the damage from food every time you eat. Mm. As long as you drink it when you're uh, having having a meal. So it might not work if you if you don't if you don't do that. So okay. So just as a quick follow up for our audience and a curious me, so it's not just any alcohol that helps aging. It's specifically the red wine polyphenols and the possibly a combination of alcohol with it yeah so yeah the evidence for any alcohol is is much weaker there is observational like uh, epidemiological evidence for it but the the best epidemiological evidence which is backed up by multiple randomized controlled trials of of um, surrogate markers of aging suggests it's red wine and not even white wine and also red mm-hmm. wine has like it's got like loads and loads of polyphenols in per liter. I think it's like 500 milligrams per liter. Whereas um, the stuff, the polyphenol levels for white wine or rosé, they're like order of magnitude lower. Okay. Uh, well, there's another one. Sorry. We're kind of like this. You mentioned the, all the level one factors and uh, like wine was one that we were kind of like people might not understand the relationship uh, between that and aging. Mm. And the second one was sleep because I think people generally get an idea like smoking is bad because of this reason, diet and exercise. But what's the relationship between sleep and aging? So there's not much good evidence that um, total sleep time above four or five hours actually makes a difference because all the studies are majorly flawed because they're not adjusted for uh, sleep quality or objective or subjective sleep quality, like insomnia or sleep apnea, these kind of things. So basically... Sleep will only do so much. You can actually get away with like more than more than you think, based on the evidence. The main thing to worry about is insomnia and sleep apnea. Yes, insomnia is where it takes more than thirty minutes to fall asleep or get back to sleep for like three three nights a week for more than three months. It's kind of like where insomnia starts clinically. So if you have that, then yeah, that's bad, and that's associated with like increased risk of you know, hypertension or occult hypertension or diabetes. So that bad. And also, if you have sleep apnea, especially moderate or severe sleep apnea, then that's really bad as well. But yeah, there's not much evidence to say that like sleep causes aging um, outside those contexts. But yeah, sure, if you're, it's like there's a lot of weak evidence that suggests having regular sleep within plus or minus half an hour sleep and wake up times each night and having more than seven hours sleep there's some weak evidence there that it that slows like some you know emerging aging markers like epigenetic age or 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 telomeres as well but yeah the evidence is like so bad it's not really convincing so yeah i think the american sleep association or whatever the name is i think they've got it about right in terms of their recommendations it's more about preventing insomnia and preventing sleep apnea and ensuring you have good quality sleep rather than the total sleep time is that's like the most basic thing to understand about sleep as it gets extremely complex with all the sleep markers and polysomnography and stuff i'm just going to jump ship here and uh, go on to some of the other questions we have unrelated to sleep and wine so if someone is interested in aging and they decide to go to medical school what exactly might their options be to continue pursuing aging there yeah, so basically every medical specialty other than 
pediatrics, um, you will be treating aging. Um, you know, cardiology, dermatology, rheumatology, whatever. So is that what you mean? Or do you mean in terms of innovation? Uh, probably both. Like, obviously, there's a, a bunch of different curriculum, pediatrics, rheumatology, cardiology. Uh, there's also ger- geriatrics, but not necessarily a field that's specifically built around just looking at aging. It's more so you look at aging in the various fields. Mm. So like, if, say, for example, myself, say I'm interested in aging. I go to medical school. I don't necessarily have a direct option for aging. It's more so I look uh, at all see. these other options and get yeah. a little bit of aging in between there. Yeah, so I published a paper on this a couple of years ago. So mm-hmm. I had to make a new medical specialty because, like you said, there isn't one. I made uh, the longevity escape velocity medical specialty, which is basically mm-hmm. um, what longevity school for clinicians will be. So you'll get certified in that and we'll have a you know re- registration board and revalidation all that stuff so yeah it doesn't really exist i've got a paper which describes kind of like how all the other specialties like geriatrics or gp family medicine the the current specialty framework doesn't really it, it's not optimal for maximally reducing all cause mortality because you mm. you need um you need like 20 or 30 or, or you know 10 to 30 depending how old you are and how how bad your organs are you need 10 to 30 different specialties to actually provide you maximum all-cause mortality reduction normally. So, yeah, it's quite a different approach to medicine when you think about how to slow someone's aging in every organ uh, from the outset compared to the current medical specialty framework. So with the current medical specialty framework, do you think you learned enough about aging throughout, throughout your entire curriculum? Mm. No. No. It's it's hard though because like I've had to learn like specialty level knowledge. It's it's not really how uh, how like the, the like medical society works because currently it's like you just go you you go when you're sick or you have symptoms and if you don't if you don't have symptoms then you just get like a personal trainer or a dietitian. If you're as a luxury, basically, that's the kind of that's kind of the paradigm currently. So preventive medicine doesn't really exist as much as people think they'd like to think it does. It doesn't really exist. So I think that's that's the root cause. It's because it's kind of like like the mindset, or it's it's probably related to to like the financial aspects of um, public and private insurance companies that they, they won't really reimburse uh, these preventive therapies because the evidence isn't there to prove that it's cost-effective and then they can stay in business. So it might, it might even make the... Yeah, I don't know. There's like complex financial reasons behind it. And then that trickles down to the medical schools, probably, um, in terms of what's actually in the, in the medical school curriculum or postgraduate curriculums as well. So it's complex. It's complex, like why why it doesn't exist and why I didn't learn it. But regardless, it doesn't really matter because that's why I've made longevity school. So I'm going to teach you everything I've learned that I should have learned. All right. So say, I guess, in the ideal future, you know, longevity school is doing great hmm. and we have all this preventative medicine yeah. going on. It's not just treat, yeah. all right? Uh, not just treatments. I guess... 
have you noticed because it's not you know the life extension technologies mm. and all that it's not really a matter of like if but when so being you know the medical professional you are have you noticed any sort of demographic differences in terms of acceptance of the you know new preventative or radical technologies um, in that sort of sense so what do you mean by new preventative or radical because do you mean like statins do you mean like so flaxseed yeah I, I i guess yeah what kind of people what what sort of people would be more open to like life extension technology in the future based on what we are currently well it's just living? pills and like all that all that translates into the real world is just it's just pills foods or injections that's really kind of it i mean or, or devices you know that's kind of most of the modalities covered so it's like yeah um they're not it's not really a big deal like it's like yeah will you take this injection for this um this new therapy will you take this pill it's kind of like it's just like normal medicine it's like would you take vitamin d but you know it's like a more advanced version of that I guess it's it's all about risk. It's more about risk perception. I think that's what your question is. So it's like, yeah, I think that's what you mean. Yes, um, sorry. So it's like, are, are certain people attracted to taking more experimental therapies that are not less evidence-based or are evidence-based but come with a high risk profile? Maybe it's more like that kind of question. Um, I don't know. I don't know. My sample size is too small. <laughs> right. so, well, i think everyone is that, like uh, as a doctor everyone kind of trusts you so it's it's more about like well not everyone trusts doctors but there's a certain level of trust so it, yeah. it's more about like a lot of it's in the doctor's hands really like if you train the doctors to do stuff then they're gonna they're the ones convincing the patients so you don't you don't have to convince patients as well you can just convince doctors and that will, that will do a lot of the legwork in terms of like spreading the innovation. Mm -hmm. So when I guess this is kind of the opposite side where are there any scenarios like any diseases or any conditions where somebody's health like won't permit them to take some type of radical life extension therapy like living an extra 50, 60, 100 years is actually much more of a deficit for them? Um, so yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand the question but yeah, like yeah, obviously there's like contraindications to interventions for pretty much every intervention out there, even, mm -hmm. even water. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, the whole point is to have personalized medicine, um, and personalized medicine, like obviously all medicine is personalized, but personalized, but by personalized medicine, I mean like next level personalized medicine where you're really, you're taking into account, like, you spend a lot of time and have a lot of data points to back up your decision making. So it's like biomarker guided decision making uh, yeah. to an extent which isn't normally done. So normally, if you take someone's, you know, you want to try optimize someone's blood pressure, right? Then you're thinking about all the risks and benefits behind the different options. Um, but like, you wouldn't. The next the next level for that would be to have access to like 24 hour blood pressure, central blood pressure, and having this monitored um, and then having like real time feedback for side effects based in the app 
which directly goes to the doctor and it's like nicer workflow. So that's like an example of like next level personalized medicine. And then at the same time, you're like, you're not just giving them the, the standards, um, you know, ACE inhibitor or whatever as first line therapy. Rather, you're you're showing them like, okay, here's 20 dietary options of, of stuff that's just as effective as ACE inhibitors for improving clinical outcomes. Um, why don't we try these first for three months based on your dietary preferences? Let's have a chat with about that and implementing it with a nutritionist. Doing that first, bring blood pressure down, plus exercise, plus calorie restriction, all the level one stuff. And then it's like, okay, that didn't work because you're so old. You need you actually do need blood pressure medication to reach the optimal range for clinical outcomes and all cause mortality. So now we're going to prescribe something uh, at a dose based on a lot of biomarkers like central blood pressure and augmentation index and 24 hour blood pressure. And we're also going to adapt it to your genetics um, based on your FDA approved allele for this blood pressure drug, that kind of stuff. That's like, that's like next level decision making uh, and how decision making should be. Obviously, it's expensive and, and time consuming. It's why it can be done, but it isn't done, um, even though it's evidence based. But like, it's, it's that decision making that you need to. That's kind of like the answer to your question, if that makes sense. All right. So, uh, since we're on the topic of living longer, if we were to somehow eradicate age, you know, change life completely, live forever, how might medical professions change? Like, obviously, we have geriatrics now. Would we should we be expecting a new field, new new scenario? Like, what should we be expecting exactly here? Yeah. So, but it depends. It depends like how far you go into the future, of course. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, there'll be like, there's you know, there's always medical specialties always adapting. There'll be new medical specialties, you know, people that specialize in maybe prosthetic organs, you know, rather than rather than um, being a traditional um, kidney doctor, for example, maybe you start specializing specifically in um, prosthetic kidney implants or a kidney surgeon starts subspecializing in prosthetic kidneys. So I think there'll be like there'll be more subspecialties. Um, there'll be this longevity escape velocity medicine specialty, of course, um, and there'll be there'll be just new specialties as well. But I think it's going to start kind of like the existing specialties will branch out to be to being more subspecialist. Is probably the way that it is going to go. Mm-hmm. And then we have one more sort of, this is like a hypothetical futuristic question. Um, but pretty much as far as right now, like a lot of people put health secondary, like, you know, we, we don't sleep that much or we work like excessive hours. Um, and often, more often than not, like our health is something we put on the side. So with, let's say there's a bunch of life extension technologies, maybe we are not able to, maybe we eradicate aging, like Sufal said, maybe there's no biological age anymore. Um, in that case, would you expect people to take care of their health more because it's something that can now sort of, you know, life is, it was finite and now it's maybe something that's not. Would you expect them to take care of their health more? Or would it be the opposite where because there's all these like, technologies, people would just be more, you know, be more risky, I guess. So, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. 
but you have, you have to think that everything will be autonomous and it will, you know, increasingly autonomous each year. So your diet will just be tracked like automatically and optimized automatically. You'll have a scent, you know, an implant, which will measure what normally takes 30 vials of blood for me to do right now. They'll just do that 24 seven using some like weird, you know, some kind of crazy chemistry um, in the implant. So it'll all be automated and done for you. Uh, and yeah, there'll be like increasing leeway to take molecular damage and revert it. Um, so, but there'll also be increasing safety in terms of like stuff that we can do. So like maybe there'll be, you can get super drunk, but it only targets like certain regions of the brain, which, and then the antidote to protect those regions from the, uh, like ethanol toxin is in the drink as well like that kind of stuff so it's a bit of everything i think yeah obviously people would want to take you know just eat whatever they want all the time or or just not eat at all like they don't have to eat people start doing these weird things because they can get away with it and just get a replacement liver very easily and very cheaply so uh, actually, the idea of prosthetic organs are very interesting to me. But changing, since we're near the end, I just wanted to ask: uh, th- we've spoken for what forty-five minutes now. Is there, if there was one thing for everybody to take away from this entire podcast, what do you think it should be? So yeah, level one, two, three. The concept's really important. Uh, could save you and your friends, families, patients' lives, etc. Um, people forget the level one stuff super important and then they people for years the whole life the whole quality of life is ruined because they have bad sleep or bad mental health and it's never properly resolved but there's like there's hundreds of randomized control trials for evidence-based therapies for these things which just never used people never seek help for their sleep or mental health and, and it just ruins their ruins their quality of life and then level three stuff um no one's thought about it as systematically as i have before um so you know, it's going to be hard to get away with just rejuvenating one organ. You've really got to be monitoring, especially once you get to advanced ages, like 80 plus, 75 plus, the super high risky ages. Like, unless you're tracking and solving for all organs, there's going to be, you know, one critical organ which goes wrong and then causes you to have a horrible disease or die. So you really, when you think think about health, you think like level one, two, three, that's 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 the new framework for medicine for me. And for people who are interested in learning more about the framework or about your work in general, that's my uh, name. Dot com. So Oliver Zolman, Z O L M A N. Dot com. So for all of you guys listening, any links or things we discussed throughout the episode will be in the description below. And once again, thank you, Oliver, for coming on. I'm Immortal, your source for all things Immortal. We really appreciate you taking the time to come and speak with us. Thanks so much.